0: Welcome to The Kick in the Cast, the audio blog of a wannabe podcast novelist. My name's Chris, and this is episode 20. Hello, and welcome back to The Kick in the Cast. Well, it was a fight mixed with delays, anxiety, and more than a few technical issues, but here we are at episode 20. I think I'm further along now with this new version of the show than I ever got with its predecessor. Short of the original Outcast feed and another podcast I've been on for a while, I think this is the longest-running project I've done. I will be honest, though. The recent silence nearly did me in. I'll talk more about it after today's chapter, because I know most of you are here for the story, so let's get to it. Today I have chapter 19 of Outcast on deck, And once again, I have some content warnings. This chapter contains scenes of sexual and mental abuse, death, and coercion. As always, there's nothing explicit, but I am trying to cover my bases. So listener discretion is strongly advised. And with that out of the way, let's get into chapter 19 of Outcast. Outcast A Novel, Written and Read by Chris Fitzden Chapter 19 Exiles were the lowest of the low. They were societal garbage in the eyes of everyone, clansmen or not. No right to a surname, no right to own anything, and in many cases, No way out of their predicament. Like my father said, to be an exile is to die a slow death. It wasn't just the clans an exile had to fear, though. The majority of the Bengalan population had no declared clan heritage, but they also had no tolerance for exiles. To them, exiles were criminals. They cheated, stole, and sometimes killed so-called decent citizens for a handful of credits or even a bite of food. Many called for the mass extermination of exiles, or the legal right for the non-clan to kill them on sight like the Shatlia could. Ridding the world of their stench would be like curing a blight on the land. Killing exiles outright would be a mercy, though, when compared to what some others did. Alone, desperate, and vulnerable, there was no end to people who could and would exploit exiles for their own gains. Name an illegal activity, and as sure as two moons orbit Bengalus, one or more exiles would be involved. Of course, the authorities would never pursue anyone higher than the exiles. What was the point? If anything, the criminal element would just acquire more exiles to be set up and cut down. Urban beautification. Everyone's happy. Yet, for all I thought of how Shantel treated exiles, they were utterly complacent when compared to the tribes of Tanaya. The clans had the Shatlia, which were an effective and sadistic honor guard, yet they paled in comparison to a sect of Tanayan tribesmen known only as the Purifiers. Their mission was a simple one. Find an exile, wipe them out, and keep the land pure. Someone banished from the tribes had a few days to leave the tribe lands before the high priest of the ten tribes summoned the purifiers. The length of this head start depended greatly on the circumstances behind the banishment. The more severe the reason, the less time they had. The head start, in many cases, was little more than a protocol-serving obligation. There was no required minimum, but tradition still demanded it. Taki only had three days before the purifiers began. Luckily, she'd managed to leave the tribe lands by the second day and was in the capital city of Kalarath by the third. The foundation, as I knew it, didn't exist in Tanaya. As a result, Taki fended for herself right from the start with no help or guidance. She eventually found a place, a tavern, that would let her stay in one of the vacant rooms at night in exchange for her work. She served drinks, cleaned tables, and endured more than a few insults and advances. However, it was a far better fate than to face the purifiers. She had been at the tavern for just over a month when he walked in. Originally, she'd paid him no mind and served him like any other customer. However, when she started receiving some significant tips from him, her curiosity rose. They were generous enough that on days when she dared, She was more than able to buy the things she needed to survive, as well as indulge herself a bit. Normally used to the strict ways of the tribes, with enough money in her pocket, the world seemed to open itself up to Tiki. She soon realized that there was a life outside that of the tribes. A good, comfortable life that didn't require a daily sacrifice of body and soul. Thanks to her mysterious benefactor, she'd gotten a taste of urban living, and by the gods, she liked it. Another month passed in this blissful state for her. Every few days, the mysterious jaguar would show up either alone or with a couple of friends. On those nights, Tiki knew she was in for a windfall. She even started chatting the jaguar up when she could. She didn't really learn that much about him, save that he was from Kerala City and that he was in Kalarath on business. Of course, she'd said very little about herself, but he didn't seem to mind. He was a rather charming individual, and Taki couldn't help feeling a little infatuated with him. One night, the jaguar came to the tavern alone, and the moment Taki put his first drink on the table, he made her an offer. He admitted to being impressed with her skills as a waitress, and knew of many places in Kerala City that could pay up to ten times what he figured she was making in her current place. He promised her he'd help her find one of those perfect jobs if she'd just come with him. She didn't really have anything to lose, and she also knew she couldn't stay at the tavern forever. Eventually, someone would discover her identity, and that would be the end of her. Still, Corala City was a long way from home and the life she knew. Was it worth the risk to leave? She really didn't know this man that well, but the offer was too good to pass up. She agreed to follow this jaguar to Kerala City and to a new life. She ran to her back room, grabbed her things, and met the Jaguar outside by his chauffeur-driven skimmer. With a smile, the Jaguar helped usher Teke into the back seat, and then entered the vehicle as well. The moment that door closed, however, Teke's dream of a new life ended, replaced by a nightmare. The Jaguar and the three others in the skimmer had been relentless. They were on her before they'd made it out of the parking lot. Taki struggled as they stripped her, and the jaguar brutally violated her. She would have screamed had not one of the others, the lion, not been forcing his own manhood down her throat. The other two, the cheetah and the tiger, waited patiently for their turns with her. By the time they reached the spaceport and their private hangar, Taki was little more than a bundle of shivering, fluid-soaked fur on the floor of the skimmer. She barely remembered the tiger picking her up and carrying her into the transport that would take her from this hellish experience into one even more nightmarish. She took some solace in that for the entire trip, no one laid a hand on her. they had apparently gotten what they wanted from her, and now they were merely delivering her to someone else. The transport landed a few hours later, and again the tiger carried her to a waiting vehicle. When it arrived at its intended destination, they dragged the cougar into a large building. It was nighttime, so she really couldn't make out the shape of it, or even where it was located. Not that such knowledge would have made any real difference to her. They led her down a hallway, and eventually shoved her into a room. It was a small one, with only a bed and a nightstand. She could see another opening on the far end, which she later learned was a small bathroom with a personal shower. The bed looked large enough to hold her and perhaps one other person, and the moment she made that observation, the clarity of her situation hit her with the force of a slap to the muzzle. She heard the door close and lock behind her, and she collapsed on the bed. Her sobs and screams echoed through the room. She pounded at the door, clawed at the walls. She hurled curse after curse at the gods, the jaguar, anyone who'd had a hand in bringing her to this place. Eventually, though, the despair overwhelmed her, and she huddled herself into a corner of the room, shivering and whimpering. There was no way out of this now. This was her fate. This was her curse. This was where she was going to die. She wasn't sure how long she was there before an elderly female panther entered the room and explained her situation. Her tone of voice was about as compassionate as possible given the circumstances, but it held no consolation for her. Taki's abduction was by a prostitution ring that specialized in exiles. The room she was in would become her home for the foreseeable future. She was to become what many referred to as a closet kitten. Basically, she would wait in this room for her customers. She would have no say in how they were to use her, only that she was to make them happy by any means necessary. The door was double locked, accessible only by a key card. Clients would be issued one when they arrived and would return it when they finished. No one guarded the doors, but clients were on a time limit. If they went overtime, there would be consequences for them. However, If the reason they wanted more time was because they weren't fully satisfied, well, then there would be consequences for her. The Panther tried to console her, saying that if she performed like a good little kitten and did her job properly, there would be rewards. Extra food, better clothes, and even some time outside under escort. However, becoming that star employee meant going above and beyond for the client's many of whom had specific and eclectic tastes. Her clients would use and abuse her for the rest of her life, and they expected her to take it all with a lewd smile and a willing attitude. If not, the tiger who'd raped her in the skimmer would be the last person to see her alive. Taki sat there, unmoving. She tried to take it all in, but her mind had shut down. She wanted this to be a nightmare, but she knew it wasn't. Her first thought was to gouge out the panther's eyes and make a break for it. However, where would she go? She was in an alien city in the clutches of people who knew this place far better than she. Also, the purifiers from the tribe lands would never go this far just to kill someone like her. No, they trapped her, and no amount of denial would save her. The panther smiled sadly. She'd given this speech several times before and would no doubt do it again soon. There was no shortage of outcasts from the clans. Closet kittens were easily replaceable. She knew that Taki would have every drop of her essence squeezed out of her in the coming months, and when her eyes finally betrayed her fake smile, she would be let out, murdered, and left somewhere for the local sanitation to find. However, for the moment, Taki was a fresh recruit and as such she had to perform. This Madame of this twisted brothel was expected to provide quality service, and a Tanayan cougar would indeed be an exotic dish. taki thought about the skimmer and how brutal the tiger had been to her. It was no great stretch of her imagination to envision him beating a defenseless girl to death. Fierce as her Tanayan heritage had made her, she was no match for him. She looked at the panther, the bed, and finally the door. The revelation welled up in her, and it took everything she had not to vomit on the Madame. There was no escape for her. This was her life from now on. The High Priest had cursed her, and now she was finally realizing it. The panther said nothing more and walked out of the room. Tiki fell on the bed and surrendered to the sobs she had been holding back once more. She pounded on the mattress. Roars of defiance mixed with her sobs. More ancient curses flowed from her mouth, pleased to the gods to spare her this hellish existence. The gods, however, had remained silent. There were no windows in her room. Air vents continuously worked to keep the place from growing fetid from all that happened in there. There were no clocks, either, save a timer to inform Taki when the next client would be arriving she would have that amount of time to make herself presentable or don whatever costume the client wanted at first the madame provided her with a combination sedative and mild aphrodisiac to make her experience less horrific it helped greatly to make her performance a little more believable for the first two months her mind barely registered what her clients did to her body she would only feel the aches and bruises the next day sadly The drug was not a permanent solution. Prolonged use could lead to brain damage and eventual death. It was only to help Tequi acclimate to her new role, but eventually that crutch would no longer be available. At the beginning of the third month, the madame cut Tequi off the drug, and she experienced her client's usage of her with no chemical buffer. It was both horrific and humiliating, as he used her in ways no decent man would ever dream of. By the end, she was a quivering mess on her bed, too sore to even crawl into the shower to wash off the external evidence of what happened. Her life became a non stop cycle of sleep, food, and sex. Her body was used, abused, and violated so many times she lost count. Being from another country made her a sought after commodity and the recipient of some of the most depraved acts. However, Heeding the warning from a madame, she did her best to at least appear like she was enjoying it. She learned the right moves, the right sounds, and the right words to say to ensure her continued survival. That's all it was to her survival. Over time, her mind had hardened against the abuse. There was no emotional involvement for her, save a continuously simmering revulsion for every one of her abusers. Her responses were mechanical in nature. They were a mere show aimed at getting her through another hellish day. Her original abductors sometimes dropped by for an inspection. The jaguar, Darrow, she later learned, and the others would arrive as a group or on their own and make her relive that first horrific encounter in the skimmer. They pushed her to the limits, reinforcing their willingness to end her life should she step out of line. They were always brutal to her, much more than many of her clients. Of course, she complied with their every wish, knowing that any sign of reluctance or revulsion would result in the tiger giving her a small reminder of her fate should she be considered uncooperative. After those inspections, she would simply lie there, covered in whatever they left on her and unable to move. They were thorough. They made sure they got all they could from her before leaving her alone. The Madame would come in some time later and help her into the shower doing her best to clean her off and make her presentable once more. If only the strong-smelling shampoo and conditioner could help cleanse her memories, too. The lack of windows and the lack of a proper clock removed Teke's sense of time. Her captors had gone to considerable lengths to deprive her of any kind of anchor other than what they dictated. Food came when it came, customers showed up when they did, and she performed for them as expected. The randomness of it all made it impossible for her to focus or find a pattern. It was exactly how they wanted it. Give the mind nothing to concentrate on, and eventually all one can do is react. Before long, you are a slave to the whims of your environment. Lucidity fades, and soon all you are is a chunk of meat. Takee told me that she was near that point when something happened. Many would call it random chance, while others would chalk it up to blind luck. She said that it was divine providence, as though the gods finally decided that she'd suffered enough for her exile. Divine or not, the opportunity was small and risky, but it was an opportunity nonetheless. Had she passed it up, she would have succumbed and lived out her days as little more than a sex slave. Even after such a brief time, Tequi had acquired a few regular customers. She never knew their names, and never really cared about their lineages. She recognized them mostly by their expectation of her. One of those regulars, an aged leopard, had quite simple tastes. Apparently, his mate was not fond of giving oral pleasure, so he sought such things elsewhere. For all his sampling over the years, he'd come to enjoy Tequi's technique the most, and was a frequent visitor to her. He wasn't harsh or brutal with her. He would either lie back or sit down and enjoy what she would do to him. Despite how they met, Takee considered him the least of all the evils she'd encountered. Had circumstances been different, maybe they could have been something more than client and server. The leopard's body also appeared far too old for his age. He lived a fast, hard life, and his body paid the price he'd indulged in every extravagance that his wealth would allow. He would tell her of his escapades as she did her thing, relating stories of underground clubs where one could fulfill any and all desires. He would often compliment her, saying how she would fit right in at one of those places. Given her talented mouth, Taki would be akin to a queen. Whether he meant it or not mattered little to Taki. When she finished, he would leave and that would be the end of it. She would never leave this place, regardless of what he said. She just accepted the compliments and put on a convincing performance as she serviced him. As normal, he arrived just as her warning timer reached zero. Taki allowed herself a small but genuine smile as the leopard hobbled in. She remembered that there were times when he depended on a cane to walk, another consequence of his past lifestyle. Again, she was relieved. When he was like this, he either didn't last long or couldn't even start, which meant less of a degrading experience for her. He always left good reviews for her with the madam, regardless of how the session went. Stealing herself, she waited for him to get into position and got to work. As he finished this latest time, Taki noticed that his breathing was growing more ragged than usual. She felt him begin to shake and as he exploded inside her mouth, he fell back on the bed. She pulled off him and stared into his wide, fear-filled eyes. He was clutching at his chest desperately, as though by doing so he could ease whatever it was that was causing him so much pain. Untrained in any kind of medical aid, Teke could only stand over him, horrified as he succumbed to the heart attack and died. Panic filled her. What should she do now? The panther would be in soon, wouldn't she? She'd discover the body and send the tiger in after her. This would be her last night alive. Unless. Gingerly, she reached for the old man. She began going through the pockets of his business suit and found credit chits, identification, and the key card to this room. Her body trembled with anticipation as she dressed, stuffed the money into her pockets, and made for the door. She had no idea what lay beyond it, but the way she saw it, there was nothing to lose. If she stayed, she was dead. If they caught her, she was dead. But if she somehow made it out of here, there was a chance, though slim, that she could survive. She waved the card in front of the door's reader. Her heart skipped a beat as she heard the distinctive click of the bolt unlocking. She pushed open the door slowly and peered out into what appeared to be a hallway, lined on both sides by several doors. As she stepped out into it, she noticed that each door bore a symbol, and the one on her door matched what was on the keycard she now held. At the end of the hallway, she could see a staircase leading down. At the other end, she could see an unguarded window. Whoever oversaw this operation must have been rather confident in his or her methods. It made sense, though. Eventually, everyone here would be little more than a burned-out shell of a person. Even if their door were open, they wouldn't move. Why guard something that already knew its place? However, Takei wasn't at that stage yet. She'd been a model employee all this time, and she was about to cash in all the good faith she'd earned. She made for the window, opening it with trembling hands and peering outside. She took in two deep breaths of the cool night air before assessing her situation. She was on the second floor of a building, about twenty feet up. The ground below looked soft enough, and given her height, her feet would only have to drop about fourteen or fifteen feet. It was still high, but she'd take what she could. She slipped through the window, lowered herself as much as she dared, and, with a silent prayer to the gods, let go. The wind came up in a rush around her. She panicked. She was falling too fast. This was a mistake. She would break something the moment she hit the ground and they would be on her. They would either march her back to her room or they would kill her on the spot. She would never escape. The moment her feet touched the ground, she tucked into a roll to deflect her momentum. Pure instinct took over from that as she unfolded herself, found her feet, and bolted towards the darkness. There were no fences or gates in her way, no sensors or alarms. She thought she heard a few shouts behind her, but they were far too distant for them to be any threat to her. Within minutes, she was away from it all. The house, the panther, and the horrors of that place all faded away as the darkness of the night swallowed her up. At long last, she was free. I found out that I'd been there for over a year she said after several minutes. For the entire time she told me the story, she never once looked me in the eye. She'd at least held on to me the entire time, and while she talked, I'd felt her claws occasionally pricking me. It didn't really hurt, so I made no room to stop her. I used the money from the old man to stay alive until I found the foundation. Cyrus told me the place was safe from guys like Darrow, so I stayed there. I never even went outside. "'scared they were waiting to take me back to that place.' "'She began to shiver, and I closed my arms in around her a little bit more. "'Until you came,' she said. "'I never had the courage to leave that place. "'But something told me I had to follow you that night.' "'She sighed and then slumped a bit in my arms. "'Of course. I guess now you must hate me,' she muttered. "'Why would I hate you?' I asked. She finally gazed up at me, and I could see that she'd been crying. That look broke my heart, and I moved a hand, though still wet from the pool, to wipe her tears away. She looked ashamed, as though she'd been the cause of all this. I should have told you, she said, her voice catching. This past month I'd pretty much forgotten about them because I felt so safe around you. But if I told you... Maybe we wouldn't have gone out. Maybe, shh, I said, kissing the top of her forehead. Tiki, what happened tonight wasn't your fault. But it was, she insisted. I thought they'd given up looking for me, but they never stopped. And now that they know us, they'll come back and won't stop. You're in danger now because of me, Dallin. How can you not hate me? We're in danger every day, Tiki, I said. We're exiles. If it's not the Purifiers or the Shatlia, it's someone else after us. Darrow and his goons are no different. My ears drooped slightly. Besides, tonight was my fault. What? I wanted to do something special for you, Tiki. You've been the light in my life all this time. And around you I don't feel like an outcast. I pushed it tonight. If I'd been more careful, then this whole nightmare wouldn't have happened. It would have happened sooner or later, she said sullenly. Like I said, apparently Tanayan whores are a delicate stop, I said a little too sharply, causing her to flinch. Taki, you are not a whore, okay? You were a slave. They forced you into it, and you made it out. If anyone is deserving of hate, it's them. But— No, I said finally. Tiki, I love you, and I swear that no one will ever harm you like that again. Ever. I cupped her muzzle in my hands and kissed her gently. I swear, I whispered. Talon? She choked. She wrapped her arms around me tightly moments before the sobs came. I enveloped her in my embrace and let her ride out the volcano of emotions erupting inside of her. She held nothing back. She cried, roared, and screamed as the events of the night all hit her at once. Despite her best efforts, she was no longer able to hold it in. Through all of it, I just held her tightly. I said nothing and just reinforced through my embrace that she was safe with me. There was no judging here. Only sanctuary. The water was warm, but she couldn't stop shivering. She clung to me desperately, her claws digging in just a little more than before. I did my best not to wince despite the pain. She needed this. She needed to get this all out, and if it meant a bit of blood on my part, so be it. As she sobbed, I mentally repeated my oath to her. Darrow would never see her again, and if he did and came near her, I wouldn't hesitate. Our next confrontation would end with me walking away from a pile of corpses. Such would be their price for harming the love of a Lautari. I lost track of time, but eventually her cries faded, replaced by soft whimpers and sniffles. She finally gazed up at me a somewhat relieved look in her eyes. Her muzzle twisted into an almost innocent-looking smile, and I couldn't help but smile back. Thank you, she whispered, her voice still hoarse from all the crying. I love you. I love you, too, I said back softly. We kissed tenderly, both of us too spent from the night's excitement to do much else. We stayed in the pool for some time after, just soaking in the peace of the night and reveling in the fact that we survived that nightmare in the alley. All that mattered to me was the cougar in my arms, purring softly and refusing to let me go. After a time, we finally climbed out of the pool and returned to the fire. The extra wood I'd brought originally helped build it back up, and we spent a bit longer letting the heat from it dry our fur out. Finally, we returned to the dwelling, hand in hand. I retrieved my ID card and sent a message to work saying I was sick. However, I knew I couldn't beg off my upcoming retreat as easily, but Taki assured me that she would be alright. She also promised to stay around the dwelling while I was gone, just to be safe. We settled under the covers, and I managed to stay awake long enough to watch her fall asleep. Seeing her finally at peace helped my still raging mind. Exhausted as I was, my head didn't want to let the anger go. Still, I finally managed to close my eyes and I felt myself drift, confident that the nightmare was over and that in the morning we would return to our lives. In the coming days, this near tragedy would fade to an uncomfortable memory and serve as a reminder of the reality of our situation. The last thing I remember was feeling Taki snuggle up next to me and sigh contentedly. The last thing I did was smile before my body finally surrendered to exhaustion and sleep overtook me. And that's our story. So a lot of things contributed to these past two weeks of silence. Most prevalent was the weather. Winter came to my town with a howl. Specifically, it was a wind strong enough to push my barbecue clear across my deck as far as the connected gas hose would allow. It was also loud enough that my mic could actually pick it up no matter what I did, and it was constant for several days. I felt bad for the people working on repairing the homes that were damaged over the summer, having to work in conditions like that. The next thing that contributed was a bit of a cold on my part. It wasn't anything serious, but it centered mostly on my sinuses, so any kind of narration would have come out sounding pretty bad. I figured it was best to met up and recover before I tried again. The third thing that contributed almost reads like an anime story. I talked recently with someone with a substantial platform and a respectable following, and they gave me several points to ponder. One was substance over presence. Basically, you should have something to say before you get on the microphone or get on the telephone to say it. That didn't really plant any seeds of doubt in me, but as the conversation progressed, I got the impression that they were telling me that because I have a platform, I had a responsibility to address social or political issues in the world. If it sounds like I'm dancing over the subject, it's because I am. I didn't want this podcast to become a socio-political soapbox for me or anyone else, yet the impression I got from this person was that all platforms should be such. This threw me, I won't lie. I was angry, and with already low self-confidence, I wondered if I was going about this the wrong way. Did I have a message that was worth my time in front of a mic, and then later poring over a recording for hours to pick out where I flubbed up and make something presentable? Was this worth my time? Then a few days later, I got my answer. One of my friends on Discord and on Second Life messaged me. She's in the U.S., and like many I know, has been more than a bit on edge as of late, given what's been going on down there. She recently had cataract surgery, and to keep her from going stir-crazy, had been listening to the show. She thanked me for it, saying the show was a godsend. I replied that I was glad to help in any small way I could. Her reply gave me one of those, "Mm," moments, if you know what I mean. Small way? Love, you keep me from scaling the walls. I'd kiss you if I could get over the border. Yo, can we please get that damned vaccine? Pretty please? (laughs) I'm doing this show because I want to tell a story. I want to tell many stories if I can. I'd love to turn this kind of thing professional, either as a voiceover or a voice actor. I'd love to make a living off this show someday, but that will come later. For right now, I'm in it for fun, but selfish as it sounds, it's good to hear that I'm doing something good out there. It reminds me that what I'm doing is worth the time and effort. So for all of you who are listening, thank you. Okay, now that I've vented so much, I think I'll end it here. As always, thank you for tuning in. And if you'd like to leave some feedback, you can email me at outcastnovel at gmail.com or leave an audio feedback via the SpeakPipe app at kickit.yo5.ca. So until next time, take care of yourselves, take care of each other, and above all, have a good week. This is Chris, signing out. Have a good one. Thank you for listening to The Kickin' the Cast, the audio blog of a wannabe podcast novelist. For more information, please visit the show's website at kickit.yo5.ca, and to leave any feedback, please feel free to drop an email at outcastnovel at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and hope to see you next time.